Radio Mano Papachango. Chris, this is Corey calling you from Salt Lake City. I've been a longtime listener. I've listened. I've been a fan of yours ever since I first heard you on Rogan back in I think 2012 or 2013, um, and I've just been a big fan of yours ever since. I've got that wonderful thing called PTSD, and when you have that, sometimes you feel very alone and isolated in the world. And whenever I listen to Tangentially Speaking, I always feel less so, less isolated, less alone in the world, and I'm just eternally grateful for you and what you do. So thank you very much. Um, I hope you're doing well. If you're ever in Salt Lake, hit me up. Bye. Hey, Chris. This is Sean coming at you from the woods of Connecticut. I'm on my way home from teaching yoga at a prison that I volunteer at. I just wanted to share a little bit of a beautiful irony that I experience every couple weeks when I see see my boys and um, I can say anything there most uh, most yoga studios I have to be very PG rated about what I'm saying but I can tell these guys to flex their grundle and push their ass in the air and and they just eat it up and we talk about how they're gonna use their new badass yoga moves to pick up ladies when they get out of there and they fart real loud and we all laugh and we crack jokes at each other and it's just so wonderful and I every time I'm there I just have this overwhelming gratitude and sensation of amazement because I have never in my life anywhere in my life felt so not judged and so safe and so free Um, and that happens inside the walls of a prison. Hello, this is Vinny, an Alaskan making a second home in Florida. I would like to thank you and your wife for making a beautiful book that has led me down this trail of literature that has helped me to find the words to better express myself and my feelings. Another part of my healing journey in life has been to know I'm not alone. And I would like to thank your guests for helping me in my healing journey. I'd also like to thank the other listeners for existing and I hope one day you do have a big meetup. That way we can all finally see each other face to face and I hope everybody is having a beautiful and healing journey. Take care. Sweet. Thank you, Vinny and Prison Yoga Dude and Salt Lake City Dude. Really appreciate it. And yes, I do hope we'll be having some get a, get-togethers. I, I, I'm hesitant to do any kind of like national, tangentially speaking, weekend in Cabo. Uh, just because that sounds like, you know, such a... Uh, like an opportunity to fuck things up and, and make a mess or come across as a douchebag guru, which is a phrase that's been ringing in my head since the last episode. Um, yeah, but I, I do, I 
encourage you to get together wherever you are. I see on Reddit, there is a tangentially speaking subreddit. Those of you who um, wander into that ecosystem online. Uh, and I see sometimes people in there talking about, hey, you know, I'm in Chicago. Anyone, any listeners want to get together? Um, I don't know how well that goes, but uh, I think some people have done it. Um, there's also a Discord server uh, at discord.me forward slash tangentially speaking. So those are a couple of places where you can find each other and, and set up some sort of regional get together if you feel like doing that. Uh, and as I think I've mentioned on previous episodes, this summer I'm going to be cruising around in the van. Uh, looks like I'm going to do a circuit up the West Coast from L.A. roughly to Vancouver, maybe a little north of Vancouver, and then turn east into the Canadian Rockies, Lake Louise, Banff, uh, and then down through the Rockies into western Montana, maybe a little of Idaho. I really like Idaho and western Montana. Fuck. Um and then uh, into Wyoming, Colorado. So it sort of depends on, honestly, it depends on fires. Uh, I've done uh, that trip to these last two summers in the van. And in both cases, I had to adjust the route because of smoke from fire. So I'm taking off earlier this year, taking off um, like the around the 10th of May. And... Um, I'll be hopefully like May, June into July doing that trip before the the real fire season starts in later summer. That's the plan anyway, but we'll see. Um, no dates or anything for get-togethers. Just listen here. And uh, if you follow me on social media, of course, I'll announce all that kind of stuff as it happens. Because of the nature of travel and the nature of the way I travel, um, I never know what the hell I'm doing more than a week in advance. So um, just follow along and you'll find out about that. Speaking of events, I'm going to be in Hawaii uh, this week, this Thursday night. I'm going to be speaking at um, the University of Hawaii um, just a, a small casual thing in conversation with Steve Herman, who's a professor there. Uh, we've been friends for years. He read Sex of Dawn. I think he reviewed Sex of Dawn when it first came out, and um, I really appreciated his insights. Uh, he's been teaching sexuality for years. He's a therapist. He was a guest on this program uh, a while back. And um, so I'm going to be flying to Hawaii Thursday and uh, seeing him. We're going to do a thing Thursday night. If you're interested in joining us for that, uh, you can get in touch with him at Herman S., that's Steve Herman, of course, Hermans at hawaii.edu. Um, and he'll hook you up with tickets and location and all that stuff. There is a, a link, but it's too complicated to read out to you here. So best bet, if you're in Hawaii and you want to come say hello, just write to him at Herman S at hawaii.edu. I think tickets are 10 bucks. If the 10 bucks is steep for you uh, and you want to come, just come and tell me, you know, and I'll give you your 10 bucks back. How's that for a deal? Because I want you to be there if you want to be there. All right. This episode is with a guy named James Ostrer. He's uh, an artist in the deepest sense of the word. He's a painter. He's a sculptor. He's a, he's a creator. And he's one of these people whose life itself 
is infused with art and whose life and whose art is infused with life. And, you know, sometimes when you say someone's an artist, it's the same as saying someone's a welder or a builder or a dancer or whatever. Other times when you say someone's an artist, what you're talking about is their being. And that's the case with James. James is an artist in the sense that he is a man or he is a human or he is a mammal. He is an artist. This guy sort of breathes it, as you'll see, and not at all in a pretentious, snooty, artiste sort of way. Not at all. And that's the beauty of it. For him, I'm putting words in his mouth, but I, I think it's safe to say that for James, art is a almost like a biological function. It's just the way he lives and, uh, and thinks and sleeps and it's, he's all wrapped up in it. And that's a beautiful thing because that's a liberated spirit. And it's not to say that's not a spirit with some torment and some, some burden as you'll hear in our conversation. Uh, but it is, on a very deep level, um, he is a very liberated person, a very free person. And uh, I don't know him well, but I love the guy. He's beautiful. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. Before we get into that, though, let me tell you about our sponsors, Mudwater. You know about Mudwater. By the way, I know we're nine minutes into this, and... I promised that I would only do ads at the beginning so you could fast forward through them. I hope this still counts as the beginning. I mean, it's the intro, right? I don't interrupt the conversation to insert ads. I'll never do that to you, I promise. Um, but I also, you know, I get carried away talking about shit and then I look up and it's nine and a half minutes into it and I haven't done the ads yet. So here's the ad, mud water, buy the shit. It can be a replacement for coffee if you're feeling like, Maybe caffeine isn't working so well for you. Uh, caffeine's great for some people. Other people, it makes their armpits sweat. Uh, it seems to be there's some relation with uh, heart palpitations. If you're a naturally high energy person, maybe caffeine isn't the right move for you. Sometimes when people scream, you know, I see traffic rage. I think too much caffeine, dude. Just mellow it out a little bit. Um, there is caffeine in this a little bit in the cacao, but not as much, not nearly as much as in coffee. Um, also, it's got mushroom extracts and cinnamon and masala chai and all sorts of delicious shit. So if you want to either maybe replace coffee or maybe have a little less coffee or maybe just have it in addition to coffee, right? Why not spread out Mudwater, M-U-D-W-T-R dot com. And, uh, yeah, if you, ha if you missed it a few episodes back, there's a conversation with Shane Heath who created Mudwater. It's his baby. And, um, yeah, it's spreading like wildfire. I, I see it all over the place. I see more and more people using it on that hunting trip out in Hawaii. All the, the dude bro biohacker guys had their Mudwater with them. It was, uh, yeah, it's definitely a thing. Now, Mudwater's great, but the bulk of the funding for this podcast still comes from you. You, the listeners who sign up through Patreon or who contribute uh, through the donate button on my webpage, through PayPal, or however the hell you do it. And if you don't have cash, 
and you just you write a review on iTunes or you tell friends or whatever the hell it is that you do to support the podcast, even if it's just sitting on a rock somewhere thinking, fuck, I love that podcast. I like having that guy's voice in my ear. Even if that's all it is, I appreciate it and I feel it. I fucking feel it. Here I am alone in this room and you're out there sitting on that rock and it's warm and you feel it on your butt. Yeah, I, I know you're out there. I know it. Just like you know I'm here, right? We're in this together. Anyway, I appreciate just knowing you're there. That's that's a lot. It really is. Uh, all right, is there anything else I need to say? I don't think so. Speaking of knowing people are there, um, a couple weeks ago, maybe 10 days ago, I got a text from my friend Katie uh, from Colorado she is in Australia. She sent me a little text. She said, hey, I just heard this woman busking today. She's playing on, on the pier, and she's fucking great. Thought you'd like it. Sends me a link to her website. Go to the website, listen to some music. Fuck yeah, that's good. So I played one of her tunes last week, last episode. Next day, I get an email from the musician, Elena. Hey, thanks for playing my music on your podcast. Uh, I checked out a few episodes. Really digging it. Good to know you're out there. I mean, how fucking cool is that? You know? What an interesting world we live in. Fucked up, but interesting. Uh, anyway, so I'm going to play another song by Elena. Just because I think that's so cool. And I really love the way she delivers the tunage uh her name is elena b williams you can check her out the the uh album is feet in the sand i bought it on itunes and the song i'm going to play you is water from the sky her name is elena b williams she's based down in australia i think she i think she's uh, part fijian or something south pacific i forget but uh she's an interesting lady very into living off the grid simple life good life i resonate with her entire approach to music and life and humor and kindness and all the rest of it so this is elena b williams water from the sky thanks for listening everybody <music>
Topanga with James, who showed up an hour early. So if we sound a little drowsy, it's James's fault. But we're drinking coffee and uh, Lacroix. James, what's your uh, Ostrer? Is that how you say your name? Yeah, correct. Yes, Ostrer. Well, James Ostra. I know. I forgot James Ostra. <laughs> James doesn't know what his last name is or how to say it. Uh, uh, but you were just telling a story. This is one of these situations that often happens with the podcast where the guest is hanging out, starts telling a story, and I'm like, fuck, dude, we got to get that story. That's a good story. So you're just, you're wearing my hat because you're recently bald. Yeah, I mean. So bald- how long ago did this happen? Well, balding, I guess, is a progressive anxiety, right? right? But but your transition to like, fuck it. When oh, the story you're telling it, about it, the tattooed bar- barber. Yeah, it's the shaved hair situation. Right. Um, well, to give you some kind of context, we didn't... By the way, thank you for having me. <laughs> thank me at the end, if you still want to. Right. And I've never been an hour early for anything. <laughs> I was just excited to come and see you guys. Well, that's great. Welcome um, to Topanga. Thanks. Um, so... Shaving my head was a concern because my dad's bald, mm. right? I mean, he had like a Danny DeVito ponytail style from Twins mm. um, in the 90s. And that shit doesn't work anymore. No. Um, and so I was like progressively losing my hair. In fact, I thought I was going bald when I had a full head of hair. Like I started wearing hats when my hair was beautiful. Mm. It was absurd. Now I look at it and... um I think one of the, you know, I guess it's about like, my mum once said to me, I don't want to see you once you're bald. What? Yeah. She's like, I don't like. I- <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> yeah. Why the fuck would she say that? I think she likes hair. Like she, she, she said to me, she likes to see the world through celluloid and that doesn't extend to male pattern baldness. Wow. Yeah. She sounds tough. Well, uh, she's amazing. Like, yeah, she, she's she's got the greatest sense of humor of anyone I've ever met. Uh, she's wild. And um, I can't believe I'm already talking about my mom. <laughs> <laughs> 
turn on the mics. That's what happens. Right. So was she kidding? I hope she was kidding when she said that. Yeah. I mean, she's got a wicked sense of humor. But, you know, like the reality is like at that point, like I was just recently 40 and I feel the best I've ever felt about myself. Right. And that that's an exciting thing. But to go back to what we were talking about, I guess, so that we don't spend like five hours talking about my bald head, which is possible. Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> could be a meditation on male pattern baldness i mean i you know in bald the thing about baldness is it's it's vulnerability uh-huh. it's very deep you know i have a bald spot and mm-hmm. they i've been very conscious of times in my life where i felt i was losing hair yeah more rapidly and mm-hmm. sort of looking at it and going oh boy oh boy here's here it comes and one of my best buddies was bald when he was 22 23 yeah. so you know he and i've talked about it a lot and um i, I think it's really interesting because it's sort of a an outward physiological manifestation of something that happens inwardly mm-hmm. in all men as they age yeah. Right. Our body, yeah. you know, you're 25, you can fucking, you know, you can tear the world apart. And, but you're 35, 45, you're starting to, you know, your body changes. Yeah. And um, your energy levels change, you know, you start to feel more physically vulnerable. And to see that happening in your hair, which is like a sign of virility and all that shit. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's interesting. And how do we deal with it? And that's why I wanted, you to talk about this story because I think it's a really I think there's a huge difference between losing your hair in which you're a passive participant Mm -hmm. and shaving your head in which you're an active taking control participant okay yeah for sure I mean like so what happened was I I was like in the brushing forward phase right covering the old receding bits I'd acknowledged for years that I was going bald. And then I was like, what is the point where I have to fucking head shave? I'm, and I'm not like a head shave guy. Right. Like, I think, you know, I've got friends who've shaved their heads when they've got perfectly great hair. Right. So they're a shaved head guy. It's become, I mean, since Michael Jordan, I guess, right? Is he maybe the first, like, shaved head, super virile? Yeah. You know, Yule Brenner, but I don't, you know, I don't know how far back. We're going. In terms of like white guys, would it be Bruce Willis? Maybe. Yeah. And, and Joe Rogan, certainly. There are a lot of guys walking around with shaved heads. But I mean, like, who was the first sex icon who had a shaved head? It would be Bruce Willis, right? As far as white guys, probably. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. I haven't really given it much thought in racial lines. I always just thought Michael Jordan was the you know first person I could first man I could think of who shaved his head, uh, you know who was a stud. I don't know why. I mean, for me, the reason I like stated like, uh, and you know said, oh, who's the first white guy who's yeah. had a shaved head? But for some reason, I've always find found black guys with shaved heads are so hot. Like mm. there was never any doubt in my mind that that was not something right. that didn't like to me equate to like their sexual prowess being less because right. they didn't have hair. Right. Whereas for some reason I equate that within the, you know, stratosphere of like yeah. white men as being like, Oh, you're losing something. Right. And like what you were saying in terms of your prowess or yeah. your, you know, for some reason I never equated that to yeah. black guys. Yeah. Well, also, I mean, black hair is different. You know, uh, yeah. African-American hair is different. It, like, 
especially if it's short, it sort of follows the shape of the head very closely uh-huh. anyway. Yeah. And from a distance, you can't even tell. Like it, that, that, I guess that's the answer, yeah. yeah. But yeah, I mean, like, with my hair, it was like the decision was made for me, thank fucking God, because I was never going to make it. Like, my top line thing was like an island. Yeah. When it joins, the receding bits join, and it's the fucking island on the front, it's fucking game over. So it's like a flood of skin happening slowly on your head. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I feel that. I've got like... Dude, you've got great... Like, you're in like... You've got great color hair. Like, for for having a little... I didn't even notice your bald patch, to be fair. Well, it's because I'm tall. If If I'm, you know... But also, I think the reason is I would have noticed if I was still worrying about my hair receding. Like, you know, it's like, oh, I want to buy a mini or I just bought a mini. You notice fucking minis everywhere. (laughs) Like for the same with the hair loss thing. Like now I don't look at dude's hair going, has he got less than me and more than me? Should I shave? Has he shaved? None of that shit. I mean, it's a fucking. So what happened was I was in I was in Hollywood and uh I mean, I wouldn't say I was dating someone, but, you know, I was helping walk their very small f- fucking dog and <laughs> buying them $12 matcha lattes. <laughs> Sounds like dating in which, Hollywood. Which I could ill afford. Yeah. And, you know, I'm in Larchmont, which is like definitely a sort of gentrified area of LA. And uh, I sort of see this barber shop and I'm like drawn to it because it's like these sort of cool looking Mexican guys in there with like neck tattoos and it's like nice leather kind of whatever. They're wearing stuff so my hair doesn't get on them. And I go in, I sit down, I'm like, the guy's like, so, you know, he's not that interested. I noticed the prices were like 30 fucking dollars. I'm like, am I really going to do this $30 thing? I'm like, well... Uh, you know, uh, it's going to happen. This is crazy. This The money's just falling out of my pockets anyway. So what's the point? And I, I was like, oh, I said to him, what do you think? Because I get anxiety. I think it's coming, developing from just the strength of your coffee right now as well. And, <laughs> and uh, he just got his buzzer and fucking hit the front of my head and took it all off. Took like, off bam. Without even running it by you. No. He just did it. He's like... He's like, fuck this. Fuck, fuck the island, man. I'm going to help you, bitch. Yeah. You need to let go of this shit. Yeah. And wow. I, I, I'm so, and I, I felt violated instantly. I was like, literally like, fuck, that was uncool, man. And then I was like, well, it's happened. So I better let him just shave the rest. Because if I walk out looking like this, they'll think <laughs> I fucking left the loony asylum, right? <laughs> yeah. And so I sat there, he shaved the rest off and I'm like, fuck me. And then I was waiting for the girl get grabbing the fucking... $30 matcha latte set up she walks in with a cardboard tray with all that shit the dog runs in and she's like hey oh my god your hair looks am- your Did she say hair or head she's like oh my god that looks amazing and then I instantly was like yeah fuck yeah it does that's right bitch I took control of this shit so via this Mexican gangster barber and then what <laughs> What that means to me is, is like the fucking reason I was worried about my hair all these years was about my sexual prowess, right? It's like you were saying, that was, I got the validation of a small dachshund. (laughs) Oh, oh, it was the dog who loved it? Well, the dog and the chick with the dog. All right, so the Uh, dog's licking you, the chick's loving it. Yeah, and I was like... Okay, I'm a shaved head guy now. Right. And I've loved it. Oh. I don't look in the mirror when I'm brushing my teeth, look at the fucking light in right. it. It's just like, boom. Right. And how long ago was this? 
Not long enough for me to understand what my hat game should be, hence why I'm borrowing yours. Because <laughs> I was a bit chilly. Still working on the hat game. Yeah. 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 Well, I've had a hat game since I was like 21 or so. And it, I remember when it happened. I was in Alaska and uh, I, you know, I was on this adventure. I was camping and working in a cannery and... I was like, I had no money. I was super like Mr. Adventure dude. And my hair was long and I decided I would cut it with my knife. (laughs) And so I just sort of grabbed it and just like hacked off hunks of hair and you know, like, okay. And I hadn't looked in a mirror in months and I didn't give a shit. Uh And there was this cute girl there. I remember she went, she was going to Harvard and it was her summer break and she Mm -hmm. and her boyfriend had come to Alaska to work in these canneries and do this thing. And her boyfriend was annoyingly cool because I, I was definitely into this chick. Yeah. And so she sort of had this like big sister vibe with me and Mm. she saw me and laughed her ass off. And then like a few hours later showed up with a hat. And she had gone to like the the Salvation Army, you know, used mm-hmm. clothing store. And she's like, wear a hat, dude. I mean, give me a fucking break with this haircut. And she gave me this hat and it was like a, one of those sort of like um, the Australians call them cheese cutters. You know, it's like a cap that comes down to a sharp point, like a taxi driver kind of thing. Uh-huh. And I wore that and it was great. And I, it looked good because I have sort of an Irish face anyway. And that kind of hat looked good. And then I traveled for years. I always had a hat like that because you can fold it up, stick it in your pocket. You get a little cold. You put that thing on your head. It's like the most efficient temperature management device you can possibly have. Yeah. And uh, so for 20 years, I always had a hat, you know. Mm. And also, I, I hate sun. So I've always got a hat. Of course, you know, yeah. For, um, uh, sun. But, you know, people would say to me, I remember in my 20s, people would be like, you wear a hat all the time, man. It's going to make you bald. It's going to fuck up. And I'm like, I don't give a shit because I already have a hat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who gives a shit if I'm bald or not under here? And I just remember thinking like, and I remember talking to people about it at the time, every man should shave his head in his early 20s. It should be like a, you know, like a rite of passage. Uh Uh-huh shave your head so that you won't spend the next 20 years stressing about it. I fucking agree with that. You already know what you look like. You yeah, look yeah, fine. Yeah, yeah totally. You already know you can walk down the street and nobody turns and looks at you like, oh, look at this yeah. guy with a guy. Like nobody gives a fuck, mm-hmm. you know, but we get so wrapped up in it that it distorts our worldview, I think. Yes, Matt. I mean, I was just recently spent like a couple of months in Istanbul, right? Mm. And the fucking airport there, dude, is just full of people who've had hair plug ops. Really? Waiting to get back on their flight home. And it is kind of like they have like these big sani pads around the back of their heads. Yeah. And the whole of the front is red raw from where they've yeah. been plugged in. Really? And it, it really is like feeling like you're in the future. It's like, <laughs> it's like fuck this is so like there's no well i guess in some ways it's really nice because there's no shame in the fact that you know like back in the day was like oh uh they're having a nose job so they're going to disappear for six weeks and come back with no plaster and black eyes whereas now it's like people just fucking walk around the airport in istanbul like this is fucking normal yeah and i was so close to 
Okay, there's two things for me about male pattern baldness. I was on a thing called Propecia for a couple of years, right? And this is, I don't know if you've heard of it. It's mm, like a hair loss yeah, pill. Yeah. And actually, it was my ex-girlfriend who insisted that I came off it, right? Yeah. Absolutely. She was like, I'm going to leave you if you don't get off this shit. Yeah. Now, I'm guessing that's because she had fucking Googled it. Right. And it's like, well, I know she had, and it's like impotence, this, that, fucking whatever, please don't assume me, Propecia. But you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And it was like, I was like, my hair was so thick and beautiful, yet I was thinking, so I'm willing for my dick to stop working just so people want to fuck me because of my hair. Yeah. And then I'm with someone I love anyway in a monogamous relationship so why the fuck would i care what other people thought anyway right i was like this is a mess in my head right. yeah it, i guess it's the male equivalent of boob jobs yeah you know i have a good friend who who um had a you know boob job and the thing about the the tits is you know <laughs> the thing about tits and you can quote me on this <laughs> No, no, seriously, the the thing about boob jobs is like the way they're presented in culture is like it's no big deal. It's yeah. like getting uh, you know, caps on your teeth or something, uh-huh. you know? This boob job had repercussions in this woman's life for decades. Oh shit. She developed scar tissue. She had to have follow-up surgery. The follow-up surgery, something went wrong. Mm-hmm. The, there was nerve damage that caused spinal misalignment that caused, Fuck. you know, it just cascaded into a fucking nightmare of health problems. Fuck me. Because of what? Because, and her tits were fine before she had the boob job. Yeah. It was just what we're talking about. Like, you get this idea in your head of how other people see you, which is totally inaccurate, and it just starts spiraling out of control, yeah. and we end up hurting ourselves for no reason. So any young women listening to this, please do not get boob jobs. It's it's not simple. I mean, you have to have them replaced every 10 years. Yeah, I have to say, like, I haven't got a vast experience of being with women with boob jobs, but the ones I have seem the most emotionally disconnected to their sex. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I can generalize on that. I mean, I don't, I, I wouldn't say I've done a massive amount of primary research, but like if you can't feel your nipples. Right. Like, I mean, would I get a dick extension and not be able to feel my helmet? Mm. Fuck no. Yeah. Right. Like, what's the fucking point? Right. Find someone who likes the dick the way it is. Right. Right. I mean, it's much sexier to work through the issue that's making you uncomfortable and emerge on the other side of that with the self-knowledge and the acceptance and the, you know, the cool energy that right. comes from dealing with your shit yeah. than it is to, you know, paper over it with some weird surgical thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like... Yeah, I'm not going to speak on behalf of women who have breast implants. You know what I mean? It's like, well, if you have a double mastectomy, you either decide I'm going to have the scars and own it, maybe get some floral tattooing on there, or I'm going to, you know, get some breast I'm not talking about reconstruction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, yeah, and I'm not condemning anyone who's who's made these decisions. I'm just saying if you haven't, please consider the alternatives, you know. it's. I guess what we could say without sounding like wankers yeah. is don't do it for men. 
Yeah. Yeah. Because it's, you know what I mean? Can we if, explain that safely? Fuck knows. I mean, it, we're in a dangerous, you know, it's like, yeah. can I talk about dick extensions instead now? Yeah, let's, <laughs> let's do that. Let's get a couple of women on here to talk about yeah. dick extensions. But seriously, like, are you, are you, um, what's the word, circumcised? What made you ask that question? Well, because it's like surgery. Oh, yeah, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Genital stuff. Yeah. You are. Yeah. Do, you re- do I look Jewish? <laughs> I'm circumcised too. Oh, okay. I sure as fuck don't look Jewish. Okay. Um, do you regret it if you could go back in time? <laughs> well, it was. Change it? Uh, absolutely. Well, yeah, it's funny because I once read about or heard about or listened to something where there's this whole big scene of foreskin reconstruction, yeah. right? Where they gr- help grow back your foreskin and all that yeah. shit. I was like, wow, fuck, I'm glad I don't have that issue. Like that parental resentment or that wider like family history, religion-based resentment. But it just doesn't even enter my stratosphere. I mean, as a 40-year-old guy who started to notice that the sensitivity of my cock end isn't like as extreme as it was in my 20s where I could wear a pair of silk pants and just have a fucking hard-on all day, I'm like... If I'd had a foreskin protecting that shit all these years, would it be more sensitive now? Probably. Mm. Do I give a fuck? Not really. Right. That's how I feel about it. It's like, like, until I was 40, certainly uh, lack of sensitivity was not an issue. Right. Oversensitivity is the issue. You're constantly trying not to come. Exactamundo. Yeah. So uh, that's not a problem. And then orgasm is like, orgasm is orgasm to me. It's like, it can't feel better. You could get there faster. Boom. But like, who wants to, you know, it's... So I've, I'm, I'm with you. I've never, I've had friends who are super upset about it. Really? And it's a big deal. And, you know, they feel violated and yada, yada, yada. And it, like, I wouldn't do it to my son. That's uh, what I thought to myself. Unless there was a medical reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, um, but I don't really give a shit one way or the other. Yeah. There's a, a friend of mine got circumcised at like 18 and it was kind of traumatic yeah and i felt really sorry for him but the reason he had it was because his dick was too big for his foreskin that'll happen and it was hard yeah. to empathize for that because yeah. it's like you've got a big dick dude <laughs> well that just really means the head is too big to come out through the opening of the foreskin there's some medical term for that all right so erections are really painful wow yeah you don't want a painful erection that that'll ruin your life yeah it's like you know the the best thing is also the worst thing. Come mm. on, that's too confusing. Well, I think that's set up in a lot of people's emotional trauma, though, right? Mm. That sex is traumatic just in general because well, of shame and guilt. Yeah, like the best thing is the worst thing. Yeah. It's like, mm, actually, and you know, in, in a weird, like, I recently had a a show that I opened on Valentine's Day. Let's talk about you, James. Yeah. This is a paid commercial for jamesostra.com. Well, I'm just I'm aware of the fact that we've been like, we're a half hour into it and nobody even knows who the fuck you are or why you're here. Well, they know that, like, I, I'm bald. They know, they, bald. They, they know about your dick. My helmet's not as sensitive as it used to be. <laughs> <laughs> and I like borrowing other people's hats. That's right. Ladies and gentlemen, we are getting to the point of this interview. Well, what is the point? Like, <laughs> it doesn't have to point? be about me. That's, like, well, but, but we do want to know about you. Like, well, first of all, I'd like to say that 
I want to thank you. But it's like, seriously, like I do, there's like energies of weird. I mean, Jesus, I'm in Hollywood in Topanga talking about energies, like rewind, yeah. get yeah. my crystals out yeah, my pockets. I got a crystal for you. But it's like, in fact, I was just about to mention, right? This show that opened, I specifically opened it on Valentine's Day. Um, and the reason for that was it was about the show was called Finding Me Through You. And it was about the foundational ingredients into uh, why I love, how I interrelate to love and why mm. do I love the way I do based on like my foundational experiences on a direct level. So I guess in some ways it was like a self-portrait, but in other ways, generally, I'm an artist. Do we need to point that out? I make art and that it's been like a self-help course where I'm like the therapist and the client at the same time. Mm. And I've got to a point where I wanted to look at the construct of how I relate to love. Like I, I'm single, you know, I was with someone for like 10 years, you know, I, I wanted to examine like why I'm perpetually uh, sort of addicted to uh, sort of discomfort and extreme emotion in a relationship. Mm. Like, what? what is that? I'm veering off in my own mind because I'm thinking about my relationship. It's emotional stuff, isn't it? When yeah. you, you examine like, oh, I was with someone 10 years and now I'm talking into a microphone with someone I've only just met. Like, I'm quite disconnected from where I was right and that's a celebration that's fucking exciting and cool right. but also for a moment you're like oh I enjoyed my dog on my lap yeah I lost track of what I was saying well you were saying you were the way you phrased it I think you said you were addicted to extremes in emotion and the relationships and I was as you said that I was wondering were you seeking the extremes or did you just find yourself noticing them because extremes are so noticeable in other words, are you, do you think, are you like a relationship drama junkie? Yeah. Are you? Yeah. So you seek that. And is that in all parts of your life? Because as an artist, of course, I guess you're seeking extremes of experience and expression. Well, I mean, like, you know, I think there's so many different types of artists, right? You know, like a, fr a friend of a friend of mine, like he paints floral canvases they're very beautiful i mean he's got to a point now where that you know the layers in them are so stunning like you could enjoy looking at one of his canvases as much as you could like through the branches of a tree with the sun cutting through yeah. it perfectly right, right? Mm -hmm. and you know he sells a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of those a year yeah. and you know you throw that above a sofa in a living space and it's fucking beautiful is that the kind of art i make no like <laughs> I stitch myself into dead pigs and masturbate. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right? Exactly. Uh, yeah. So in some ways, like... <laughs> Put that over your sofa, motherfucker. Yeah, which someone has, yeah. right? And uh, that was a proud moment. It's yeah. like, wow, fucking people are getting where I'm coming from. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so I first saw your, your art... I guess now did you do the opera house was that the whole thing was your project right yeah I mean the it was conceptualized as an idea to have an opera house in Bombay Beach yeah. by Stefan Ashkenazi who uh, is a wild cat yeah and he is a wild cat. yeah and yeah. I love him a lot yeah. and 
So we should tell people. Okay, so the Bombay Beach Biennale mm-hmm. is an art festival, I guess, a cultural event that happens at uh, Bombay Beach, which is a little sort of derelict town on the shores of the Salton Sea in the deserts of Southern California, out near Joshua Tree. It's a forgotten area. Very few people even know where it is. And uh, Stefan and our friend Tal Ruspoli, who's been on this podcast a few times, and uh, their friend uh, Lily, Lily um, the three of them basically got together and funded this thing and, and brought in a bunch of artists and got, and now it's sort of, I don't know if it's, if it's self-funded or I don't know how, where the money's coming from, but they don't charge admission. And it's just, we just had the fourth year and, uh, it's growing. It's like the early days of Burning Man, but the idea is to leave the art there, not to break everything down and disappear, but to sort of enrich the environment and hopefully bring attention to the environmental catastrophe that's underway. Yeah. I mean, you, you're much more embedded in it than I am. Yeah. Is yeah. That a generally. Is yeah. I think that's the fair. Yeah. I mean, there's like, there's this fear of like the association with burning man and yeah. you know, like, but what, what were the foundational reasons for burning man? I mean, I've never been to it. Mm. I, I understand it as a con, you know, where it is. I've seen images of what the thing, I mean, the reason I've never been is like, I have such an adverse fear and paranoia to hallucinogens Mm. that is unimaginable in the past for me to go somewhere where there's that propensity of it around. Like I just wouldn't eat fucking anything there unless it was a can I opened, you know? So it's like, but actually I'm going to definitely go at some point, but my understanding of burning man is like, well, what's your like? What the foundation of it was like? Art for art's sake and freedom, and what was it? Like? Well, I mean, actually, my understanding is that the er, the very earliest iterations it started on the beach in San Francisco, uh-huh. uh huh, and then when they moved out to the desert, they were they weren't really artists. They were kind of like rough, gun toting, jeep driving rednecks Mm -hmm. and they had this thing out in the desert so they could shoot their guns and build a big fire and do whatever the fuck they wanted and and then over the years it became subsumed into this hippie artistic avant-garde kind of vibe but that wasn't really how it started yeah and i've only been once and um i found it to be partly really fascinating and partly really annoying yeah um because of the sort of self-righteous you know oh you know it's a gift economy man like we don't use money well you used a fuckload of money to get here yeah and to build your million dollar art car with pumping bad music all fucking night and yeah. You know, your coolers and your generators and like, you know, oh, this is like, you know, beyond civilization. No, it's not. No. It's just a, it's like a fucking tumor of civilization. And you got a fucking like native Indian headdress on. Yeah. Right. And it's like. And there are no black people here. Yeah. It's all white, rich, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So that. It, it it was interesting, but it was also very annoying. And uh, yeah, I I don't know. I 
it, what annoyed me the most was the self-righteousness combined with the extravagant waste. Yeah. You know, and what I really wished was like, you could take all this creativity and, and the creativity is insane. I mean, you've seen some of the unquestionable. Yeah. It's just amazing. Some of the pieces that are, are made there, but you could take that energy and go to Detroit Mm-hmm. Hey everybody, we're doing it in Detroit this year and we're going to take this city block yeah. of derelict housing and we're going to totally revitalize it, plant trees, you know, do plumbing, fix the houses and 500 people are going to have a place to live. Dude. You know? That's what, instead of just burn it all up, sweep it all up, oh. and oh, look, it's all gone. Like, come on, we could be helping people with this. I think, like, I mean, fuck. Yeah, I mean, I, I get, like, in terms of, like, Bombay Beach and the Biennale, which is, like, essentially a week a weekend party for the people who've, you know, spent a month building all of these artworks that stay in the town. Yeah. Um, and you know, with with developing that, I mean, that's the thing about how quickly things accelerate. I mean, probably no one knew what the fuck Burning Man was for the first ten years of it, right? Yeah. Whereas with Instagram and Facebook and everyone being a self-publishing journalist, it's like year zero. It's like boom, yeah. like, and then people question, oh, what is this? Oh, yeah, yeah, blah. What you know? Why are there not as many African American artists, if any at all, here? Well, interestingly my really close friend, Greg Habernay, who runs the foundation foundation there. And he's very much involved in who inviting foundation foundation. Yeah. <laughs> Great name. Is that, uh, is that down the street from the uh, department of redundancy? redundancy? All right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, he asked a number of African American artists to come out and no one bit. Huh. And I, I was, and I was like, you know, thinking that, you know, for me, diversity and I mean, this is like a game shit. It's like you, 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 I mean, it's absurd to have a bunch of white male artists producing huge artworks in a town without like, you know, there's things that you can question about the way things are right now. Like, but actually just like literally no African-American artists who've been asked whether they would like to come have responded. Well, isn't Attaway, isn't he uh, Jamaican or something? Yeah, I mean... Yeah. And he's been out there since the beginning. Yeah, exactly. He's pretty well known. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose I'm not referencing Attaway in that because, like, I consider him part of the landscape and the genealogy of the whole thing, yeah, right? Yeah. It's like... As opposed to an artist. As opposed to being it, like, yeah. oh, now someone know Like, people are starting to know what Bombay Beach right, is. Right. And it's like, oh, so now it's like oh, we can ask someone who is like, uh, you know, someone we actually already know as an artist and right. love, would they want to be involved? Kind of it's thing. a weird thing, isn't it? Because like I, I produced this show, uh, co-produced the show this year called the Motherfucker Awards. Uh-huh. And it's the first time I've ever produced something. It's an, it's an award show that where we um, gave... Uh, a motherfucker award to the companies that had fucked Mother Earth the hardest in Great. the last year. So Who won? Well, Coca-Cola won uh, in the water division because they're the <laughs> biggest supplier of plastics to the world's waterways uh-huh. and oceans. Uh, Facebook won in the reality uh, category for undermining our collective sense of what's real and true. Fucking yeah. Yeah. Uh, Tyson Foods uh they won for like contamination of 
rivers and streams and who do they own i'm ignorant on who um, tyson foods are i just like go monsanto monsanto who are tyson yeah tyson is the the biggest producer of pork and chicken I oh think. fuck and me they yeah. dump all their all their shit into rivers and um yeah so and actually i have a motherfucker award i have two two trophies on my I noticed those. Okay. They're beautiful. Yeah, one is a motherfucker award, and one is my... That's my porn Oscar. Do you for, know? No, for, I, I, for being in a porno? Yeah. yeah. No shit. Yeah, this is it's called an AVN award. Oh. Um, yeah, and you'll notice... It's oh, that's uh, heavy. It's I like heavy. it. Yeah. That's quality stuff. Yeah. Best non-sex performance. Christopher <laughs> Ryan, PhD, <laughs> PhD, Marriage yeah. 2.0, Lion Reach, forward slash Adam that's and right. Eve. Yeah. Fuck me, dude. This is great. What did you do to get this as a non-sex performance? I did performer? not have sex. Yeah. No, I, I had a cameo as myself. So I was in this porn movie as Chris Ryan... Uh, co-author of Sex at Dawn talking yeah. about the book and um, in a porno in a porn movie yeah wow yeah yeah unfortunately so it's kind of you know as I've said before it's winning a porn award for best non-sex performance is kind of like losing you know it's like it's like being the best at not doing something I've got slightly distra- distracted by the soft edges of this award, and I was wondering whether you tried to put it in <laughs> in any before. orifice. Well, not your own. Well, your own or someone no, else's. I mean, no, no one has had that trophy inside them, as yet. far as I know. Yet. As far as I know, yeah, yet it'll happen. Well, but it's pretty cold, you know. You'd want to warm it up, I think. Get a little electric blanket around it or something. I wonder whether they considered it when they were the sculptor considered. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, because... It's a beautiful item. And I was thinking, like, the trophy would probably be a dildo of some port mm-hmm. or some type, but it's actually beautiful. It's a couple embracing. Um, people can see there. I've, I've posted photos of it online, of course, because I'm incredibly proud. You should be. Yeah. I'm probably never going to land out with one of these, and I'm looking up to you right now. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get a picture of him holding it? I mean, we, we, we should really have a photo yeah. of James, yeah, award winner. <laughs> With my pink Timberlands shoes on. Yeah, those are nice. Those you want nice. me to tell you why I've got... I would have won an award for why these shoes are pink. Why are they pink? I don't know how I can say this without trying to sound like I'm bragging. Well, go for it, man. It's just like one of... I mean, I just pulled out my fucking trophy, so go for it. Is this like me going, I've got as much hair as you. <laughs> I'm going to tell you my sex story now. Uh-huh. Let's hear it. Um, okay, so let, I'm going to rewind to talking about my show. Oh, right. right. Whoa. Right. Well, the the basis of it being about finding love, right? Finding myself through you? Is My it? friend Greg keeps calling it finding me in you, which is not what it's called. <laughs> finding my trophy in you. Hey, where's my trophy, honey? <laughs> Have you seen it? It's finding, I've got to get it right. Finding, finding me through you. Finding Nemo in you. And so... The, it's the first show my mum's ever featured in, right? Mm. So my 
my my dad was in so much of my early work like he, he he's been like completely integral to my creative process he's a fucking rad dude you'll love yeah. him he helped build the opera house with me yeah. he, at 70 years old he came out lived in the desert with me for weeks we we shared a room that definitely we saw a scorpion crawl across the floor in fucking dust everywhere we were probably breathing in asbestos in that particular residence for sure i love that guy huh he's a legend and what's what's his life like uh right now he's just got back from uh vietnam and he was having sex there with someone he used to go out with 25 years ago wow yeah a vietnamese person no he's not one of them he's not gary glitter my (laughs) so you know what i'm saying he's not a sex tourist when i think of white men going to thailand or vietnam yeah no no he was meeting up with garol who um he dated between when i was eight and 14 very very sexy woman and she left him um she turned up at his house with a sausage bag and the ends of the sausage bag were drooping down and he, he opened the door and he's like she's leaving she, I mean, she had really expensive taste in clothes. And so she'd come to pick them up. She lived in France. He lived in England. Mm. And basically, he he had no money. It, you know, he, he had started off like riding really sexy motorbikes to Paris. And then it de-escalated to the point that he was getting the ferry there. And I'd gone which is why I sound so posh. I'd been at private schools. He picked me up one day and he's like, dude, I'm sorry, there's no money left. And within like a year and a half, he'd sold my bed to pay a gas bill. So he really went there Mm. uh, in that sense. And, um, you know, she was 36. She obviously wanted a kid and my dad's completely irresponsible (laughs) and that's what makes him so fucking wonderful. And anyway, she's like a lecturer, at a very top university in Paris and she came to my 40th birthday just the other week and I saw her for the first time since I was 14 and she was like, I was like, so what made you think about getting back in touch with my dad? She's like, I really started thinking about wanting to fuck one of my students. And I was like, right. And she, I was like, I was like, and? And she's like, and I realized the reason I wanted to fuck him is he reminded me of your dad. Wow. And then so she Googled my dad, found him, and then got in touch because there was some crazy video a friend of his made about him for his 70th birthday. It was like him riding bikes, him painting, him just generally being my dad. When I saw that film (laughs) at his fucking birthday, me and my sister were standing there watching. It was like Miguel, this guy had made this film. It was like a seven minute film. I started weeping because it was like watching a fucking memorial video. It was such a celebration of his life while he was alive that it fucking made me like I looked around. It's like, okay, dad's not dead. Thank fuck. Um, is that online? Can people find that, or is that just a private? Yeah, no, it's online. It's online. Google Pool Ostra, and you'll find a seven-minute video of probably. Okay, cut to his other girlfriend, who's Italian. She once said to me how much she felt sorry for me. I was like, "Why do you feel sorry for me?" And she said, "It must have been horrendous spending your whole life in the shadow of your father." <laughs> Watch this video. He's cool. <laughs> wow. Wow. Um, and he's an artist as well? I think. Yeah, yeah. So I, I used to paint the scenery. For, 
I used to play. I definitely don't feel like I'm in his shadow. Fuck me. Like, I love that guy. Mm. I mean, you know, he's. I think the thing is, he's uncompetitive. Yeah. Right. So he's not trying to nah. overshadow you or keep. Yeah. He's not like, oh, That's we're cool. playing cricket in the garden. He's throwing a fucking ball at my right. head to make me feel like a loser. <laughs> he's like, yeah. here, son, this is how you hit a ball right. as well as your dad. Yeah. You know, yeah. he's. Fu- and That's I think, great. yeah, he's fucking cool. Um, where were we? Uh, well, then, well, I was asking about his life, uh, and I'm glad I did. He sounds like a great dude, and and I, I mean, that's something you and I share. I love my dad. Like, oh, really? He, he died six months ago, or something. Oh shit, so, man! I'm sorry. Um, but no, but it. I hope it works this way for you, and you know, I don't mean to be morose, but when he died, and since then, um the the trauma is very minimal because he had a good life he's a good guy he you know what i mean it's not there's no tragedy he fucking lived his life not like your dad like he's he wasn't a big adventurer and you know banging french chicks and italian he was with my mom his whole life and that was it there were no french chicks no no italian chicks um but he was really happy and he got a lot of vicarious, like the French chicks and the Italian chicks. He got that through me. Right. So he got to see me living the life he didn't live. Uh-huh. And, and there, like your dad, there's no competitiveness. There was no like, you should be more like me or you shouldn't do this. Or it was just like, go for it, dude. Live your life. And, you know, and he loved it. He was so happy. How, how much warning did you have in his death? A lot. Yeah, I mean, he was sick for a while. And that's actually why I'm here. I live in Spain. Most of my life I've lived in Spain. No shit. So I moved back to North America to be around him for the, you know, the fading years. The twilight. Yeah. And he had uh, he had a liver transplant like wow. 15 years ago. So that was pretty, you know, we thought that might have been the end. So, and then he survived that and, and recovered, but still, you know, it was... Yeah. So do you see that as like, was it like 15 years of bonus years or was it 15 years of I'm really like had to confront his mortality and I live with that for 15 years? Uh, I guess bonus years because he was real close to dying when he had the liver transplant. It was a real sort of emergency. Um, yeah, it was kind of a crazy situation actually because my wife and I, flew over to Pennsylvania where they were living to visit and he'd been having some like he'd uh almost passed out and like I guess he was shitting some blood and like some not good stuff and he went to his doctor who he'd known for a long time and the doctor ordered some tests and didn't find anything and was like yeah just rest and you know you'll be all right anyway my wife who's a doctor Mm -hmm. You know, she said, can I, and my mother's super organized. So she had a three ring binder with all the tests and everything. And, yeah. And, um, Casilda said, well, can I look at the tests? And so she looked through everything and, and she said, look, uh, you know, I don't, as a doctor, I don't ever want to question another doctor's judgment, but mm-hmm. because this is a family thing, mm-hmm. I have to say like, like he's not ordering the right tests here. 
Like right. he's not following the the right line of inquiry to figure out what's going on. Uh-huh. I would say you should get this test and that test and this test. And so he did. And those tests revealed that he had lesions on his liver that were two point two point nine centimeters was the biggest one. And when it reaches three centimeters, it's inoperable. Shit. So when they found that, they were like, shit, man. And he was young. He was uh, like early 60s, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they were like, you got a, you need a liver transplant like yesterday. Right. And if you don't get it in the next month, that lesion's going to grow and it'll be inoperable. Because wow. then it's like it's gone through your body and forget about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so he went to the top of the transplant list immediately because wow. he was young and it was super urgent. So it went from like, oh, I'm not feeling real well, but the doctor says it's no big deal to fly to Florida, prepare to get a liver. They're going to call in any minute. It happened in two weeks. Wow. Yeah, it was a crazy, crazy time. How did that make you feel that I guess your wife saved your dad's life? Grateful, obviously. Incredibly grateful. Yeah. Yeah. And it was early in our relationship, too. We'd been together two or three years, probably. Wow. Yeah, she's interesting. She's been on the podcast a couple uh-huh. of times because um, she's, she's a doc. She's a psychiatrist, actually. But she, before she did psychiatry, she you know obviously just did the medical degree. And then she worked in Africa for seven years in the bush and you know did all this crazy badass shit, amputating limbs and delivering babies. Wow. And, like she's really been in the... In the um, uh, I don't know what we call it. In, what do they call it in the war? Like, were you in the, like in Vietnam? Like, were you in the, I forget. There's a phrase for it, but in the front lines, you know? Like yeah, yeah, really yeah, been yeah. In the trenches, I guess uh-huh. is the way you'd say it. Yeah. So does that mean you guys have really spent a lot of time apart? Uh, my wife and I? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that all happened before we met. Right. The Africa stuff. Um, but yeah, right now she's in Costa Rica working in a hospital there but let's get back to, oh, your, sorry, to yeah. your dad yeah and you're because people all know about oh yeah sorry no i was only asking that because i was like this idea of like uh, being passionate about what you do yeah into such a level that you know like i heard you know your uh um why do i keep calling it ipod i podcast podcast yeah. sorry i just i don't know why i can't get my head around that so we we met the other day right yeah um and my show that I was making the last six months, literally I had took one day off and that was for Christmas day. To, and I spent that with my mom for the first time in like 20 years. And it was like one of the most beautiful days of my life. We spent 24 hours in bed together and it was profound. Like literally my sister bought us food and that's a separate story. But whilst working all of this stuff, like in the last 10 years of my relationship, I was like, I would say I'm probably super codependent. Like I just love being around other people. Like Mm. I think I spent so many years hating myself that the way I avoided that was being around people I loved and enjoying them. And so it's like my levels of uh, drive towards uh, self annihilation are reduced when I'm around people that I'm enjoying and having a laugh with and fucking into. And weirdly now I think I've done 
you know, in terms of my art career, the purpose of becoming an artist, in inverted commas, whatever the fuck that is, was like I mentioned, like a self-help course. Mm. So it started off like making work that just reflected like my immediate, like guttural emotions, just bam. And so that work was like, what I guess people would say is dark, right? Um, sort of the same kind of visceral reaction you would have got to like Francis Bacon or, you know, dare I say, I mean, he's a fucking genius, but, and um, through that journey of, I'm not answering a question, am I? Uh, is that all right? That's fine. Is this really important to me because it's like a current issue in my head is I've basically spent 10 years full time making work that, um, you know, was some sort of like uh, shamanic catharsis of expulsion of my shit, yeah. which in some ways in crescendo has really manifested in my last show. Open on Valentine's Day, one of the key pieces in that work was called um, The First Person I Ever Fell In Love With, right? And it was a small line drawing in an opulent gold frame amongst all sorts of other sort of crazy shit. And he was the headmaster from my private school. And he's a convicted pedophile who was just recently released from jail. And quite literally, I was thinking about the fact that he was the first person I fell in love with. Mm. right and you know because I was saying to you earlier about the foundational ingredients to how you love and the way you love and he when he was going to be sentenced this other guy so I went through a bunch of therapy fucking all this stuff to do with your spectrum of shit right and it's been an amazing process all of that and there was this moment where it's like all therapists will say so what's your mum like what's your dad like were you fiddled by the vicar? Were you this? Were you that? You know, there's like this tick box of how to fucking get to know you. And this this thing came up where I was like, well, no, I've never been molested or abused or anything. But, you know, like there was definitely a strange relationship I had with my headmaster. I mean, I was sent to him every day, sat in a room with him. He would talk about how sexually attracted he was to my mum, how beautiful she was, how that if I engaged in my sexuality as young as possible, I'd less likely divorce like my parents. Capital letters grooming in right. neon lights, right? right? Yeah. Anyway, so we started talking about all that shit. And uh, in this is like 2009. I had a show called Death, Sex and Rebirth in a in a, in a, a sex shop called Coco de Mare, which was owned by my girlfriend at mm. the time. So, like, fuck me, that woman just completely opened up my opportunity to express the most, you know, like, I was already making my work and shit on a, on a level of professionality that still exists now and is getting better. But, like, when you're as emotionally all over the place as I was even then, you know, you're, you're channeled, that river gets channeled and she really fucking channeled my river. Right. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. She channeled my river. She channeled my oh, river. Oh yeah. Tears are coming to my eyes right now. That's weird. Yeah. Well, it's not weird. It's life. Isn't yeah, it? It is. And so I'm talking to this therapist, uh, and my therapist, Victoria, she was called, me and my art always joke about how many fucking horses I must have bought for her because her kids do show jumping. Uh, and uh, she was like, I was like, so, you know, maybe I should speak to this other guy who 
you, we were like the chosen ones. There's a documentary called Chosen. It's about these three guys who were molested by this guy in the 70s. And everything that happened to them happened to me and this other guy. Mm. Uh, besides the fact that, as far as I know, I wasn't molested, mm. right? And I think the reason for that is, is my stepfather just disappeared one night. And he was like my paternal role. Like I already mentioned to you, like my father's kind of irresponsible all over the place, super fun, like my best friend. But like I just held on to my stepfather like a fucking life raft of normality. So you lived with your mom and your stepfather. Yeah. yeah. Only for like four years. But it was like from eight to 12. Mm -hmm. And it was like, oh, this guy's got like a job. Like he, he leaves a newspaper. I read a paper. I know what's going on in the world. Like this kind of shit that my family just doesn't right entertain mm. and um anyway we're talking about this pedophile and i was like i think i should go and meet this other guy to talk to him about it and she was like you're not ready for that so i was like okay well what does that mean and like i resent paying money for therapy i always feel so broke even if i've got money mm. it, i have a weird relationship to money that's for sure and then we, it kind of plateaued out because she said to me, you know, like for you, you're, it's, you're more disturbed than if he had molested you. You would have been better off if he had. I was like, what? Your face says it all right now. Yeah. And that was the point. I was like, I'm going to give up fucking therapy. Like, this is yeah. fucking nuts. Yeah. It's like, you, like, it's like a continual fishing for putting whatever your negative feelings are onto an event, place, person to quantify why you feel fucked. Right. Like for me, I think it's probably more associated with a chemical imbalance. I don't really fucking know, but we can talk about that like and another time. But I was like, anyway, I had this show. Is any of this making sense? Sure, sure. I had this show in the sex shop and this guy turned up. The other Yeah, the other guy, student. the other yeah. student. I hadn't seen him since we were 12 and a half and had been separated. So the show was in London? Yeah, it was in London. Okay. He turned up. He turned up and you recognized him? Fuck yeah. He's he's beautiful. He's huh. a very handsome guy. He's yeah. very striking. That's why he was chosen. Right. You know, and I was handsome and striking when I was a kid as well. And I was like, and he was, he was the only person to buy any work. He bought two pieces. Huh. And then following weeks, I spoke to him about it. Anyway cut to what I was talking about was when this guy was about to be um, sentenced, this guy phones me up. He's, he's also now 40. Uh, he has a job where he earns four and a half million pounds a year. He has a wife. He has three children. He, ha he he's, he's like archetypally in our perception of what's like the perfect scenario. He's living it, right? Not our perfect scenario, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah. He phones me up. He's like, so the sentencing is on Friday. I was like, yeah. He said, we should go. He said, have you thought about going? I was like, yeah, I was really thinking about it. He's like, yeah, we should go there to be there for him. For him. Yeah. Interesting. And I felt the same way. I felt fucking sorry for this guy. Yeah. And I, I was like, someone I love is going to be locked up. Yeah. And this is a fucking guy who's molested fucking kids. Yeah. What the fuck is that all about? Yeah. How could, and, and that was just insane to me. Like that shared emotion we had was like, okay. 
And so then that leads on to me thinking about cross-generational trauma and why, you know, why this thing carries on, you know, and how do you break those cycles of trauma and what's that, what is that about? So ultimately, to, me, to my mind, the most traumatized people on the planet inflict that trauma back onto other people often. Sure. As we know. And so that extends to either themselves, self-annihilation, which ultimately ends in suicide or mass killing, then suicide or whatever fucking shit's gone down or just general behavior in terms of addiction and detachment to self. And, right. Which or, is another form of just, you know, suicide, really. Right. It's just slower. Just like, or, or just like the negation of your own dignity and, you know, like just take a job and just fucking punch the clock the rest of your life. You're dead, you know? Right. Accept the bullshit. Accept the, the little miserable house in the suburbs. and the, Yeah. It's like your six package. pack of Budweiser's going to yeah. just aim for that on Friday and like fucking don't feel anything. Right. Right. And so... You know, I've had an association around my own thoughts around suicide for many years back, in, you know, and like, you know, I, uh, weirdly what held me back was obviously the people around me, the people I love and shit. And one of the biggest things was like, I'm, I would never engage with the notion of suicide while my mum is still alive. Because mm, of the pain it would cause yeah. her. Yeah. I hear that. And I, at this stage of her life, like I was closer than ever with the parent, like you mentioned your dad, closer than ever, she's probably towards that stage. You know what I mean? Like, so I was like, thought a lot about it. And I'm so far removed from that kind of state of mind and have been for years and years and years. But there's like, almost like a box pop up where it's like, oh, if she's gone, I can be gone. Like, that was one of the reasons I never wanted children. And so I've have really put a deep amount of thinking into what is suicide and what does it mean and and my relationship to it, people I've experienced in my life and their relationship to it and all that. I was like, this boils down to the death of your negative self, but you take your fucking positive self with you, mm. right? And so whatever state you're in in terms of like negative self, the positive self just is so small, you don't even feel or see it. You're so disconnected from it. It's like, that's how you can put a noose around your neck and it's game over, right? Or blow your brains out. And then I, like being in California, the legalization of weed and this propensity of people taking mushrooms. And like you mentioned earlier about ayahuasca and, you know, these kind of conversations float around so much. I just happened to have like an insane fear of that shit because I was spiked with LSD when I was 14 and feel like I had PTSD for 20 fucking years. And um, I'm like, I don't know and I, I can't speak as an authority and the older I get, the more I realize you shouldn't talk about shit you don't know and learn from people who do know and then I will never try that. I know, unfortunately, in my lifetime, however beneficial that is to other people, it's worked for them. I can't even go there mm. as a construct. Mm. But when I look at my relationship to addiction, which has been extensive and I'm like teetotal now, I'm looking at that as, you know, often people talk about that being the plaster on the issue. Mm. Like you get pissed, you smoke, you take fucking drugs and your negative self stays constant, but there's this false lifting of the positive self mm. through those kinds of things. Mm. 
but the negative self still stays at exactly the same base rate. Mm. It doesn't drop down. It's right. just you've amplified what you think is feeling good. Right. But to my mind, my relationship to this shit is is rather than tr get out of my fucking mind, the hardest thing is to get in your mind and stay in it and feel cool with that. Right. Right. Yeah, which takes us back to what we're talking about with baldness and boob jobs and, you know, deal with the issue rather than try to inflate, you know, falsely inflate the positive, deal with the negative. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Face it. That's when you can have tits that look like a spaniel's ears or a micro penis and fucking feel great and have an amazing right. relationship. Right. Yeah. Yeah, but that's work. That's scary. Yeah, fuck that's, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the image of the, the dragon chasing you and the faster you run, like the dream, the nightmare everyone has, you know, the monster chasing you and you run and you run and the faster you run, the you know, the closer it gets and you can feel its breath on you. And the only thing you can do is turn around. It's the yeah. only thing that works. Yeah. But you don't do that until you're so exhausted and you realize you can never outrun it. Yeah. 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 Suicide's a, a really interesting um, topic. You know, I, I'm fascinated by the things that are taboo, the things uh -huh. that people are afraid to talk about. You know, like within two minutes of you arriving, we were talking about shitting and, you know, taking <laughs> dumps. And, and all that stuff. I was like, I wish we were mic'd up then. It's like, your shit was so quick. I was like, what the fuck? Yeah, I'm telling you that. I was like, this guy spent time in the jungle. He knows you don't hang around when you're shitting. <laughs> They're fucking snakes and scorpions. You just get it done and get out. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm sort of famous among my friends for my, you know, lightning shits. Right. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, suicide's an interesting one. It's because I'm militantly, in fact, I did a thing when I was in graduate school in San Francisco. I uh, was looking for a job and I interviewed to be a counselor on a suicide hotline. Mm-hmm. And it was sort of a typical thing, you know, you're in, you're in graduate school studying psychology, you're, you know, looking for experience and they're looking for cheap, you know, people who they don't have to pay much, who are, you know, going to man the phones and all that. And so I went and did the interviews and everything was great and, you know, fine, fine, fine. And so I had one last interview with the director mm -hmm. and it was a formality basically. Yeah. yeah. So he could meet me like, oh, here's the new guy we're hiring, right? And we met and it was great. And he said, um, he said, oh, just one, one last thing, Chris. Um, can you imagine any situation in which suicide would be a, a good choice? And I said, sure. I can imagine lots of them. And he said, mm, unfortunately, we can't hire you. Right. That was disqualifying. But I grew up watching my grandfather... Uh, my father's father spent the last 20 years of his life wishing he were dead. Wow. He was alcoholic. He had diabetes. He refused to stop drinking. Mm -hmm. And he lost every time we went to visit, he was missing more of his body. Jesus. Because he was getting gangrene and 
So when I was like eight or nine, they, he lost, he cut off, I say he lost as if he misplaced his toes, right? <laughs> but he, like, he had a couple toes that were removed. And then, and they always told him, like, stop drinking and you'll be fine. Well, no, he kept drinking. And then it was his foot and then it was under his knee and then it was above his knee. And then they started the next leg. And so Jesus. through my teens, we'd go to visit twice a year. And every time he was missing more and more of his body. And he's in this hospital bed and he's pissing in a wine carafe and he, he's abusive to my grandmother and he had bedpans and everything stank. It was fucking horrible. Wow. You know? And I remember as a kid just thinking like, dude, why don't you just die? Mm. You don't want to be here. Mm. All you're doing is making everyone miserable. Yeah. That's all you're doing. Mm. The only pleasure in your life is this perverse pleasure in knowing how much you disgust everyone hmm. that's it that's like the bright light in your life that's hmm. that's all there is right hmm. and so as a really young kid i had this very fierce feeling of like if you don't if you really don't want to be here you not only have the right to leave you sort of have a responsibility because if you're just going to hang around and make everybody miserable, get the fuck out. You know, mm. if you're going to ruin if you don't like the party, don't sit here complaining about how the music sucks. Go home. Let us enjoy the music, you know? Yeah. And so, I, I mean, I know that probably comes across in a way as like kind of unfeeling. But on the other hand, I'm very much... Like people who are like, oh, you know, I'm I'm a burden or or they, you know, they're thinking about suicide um, because life seems hopeless. I'm totally like, um, you know, my position is no, stick around. Yeah. Stick around. You don't know what's about to happen. You don't know who you're about to meet. Yeah. Don't make a permanent decision based on a temporary feeling, you know, Um and so I'm very much, I mean, I'm not against, I, I'm, people have a right to do whatever the fuck they want to do course, with their yeah. lives. That's the ultimate ownership, the only thing we own, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, anybody, this is sort of a current thing. I just talked about this yesterday in a podcast because I got an email from someone who was feeling suicidal and he didn't because he felt some sense of camaraderie with me and other people on the podcast and beautiful. Yeah. So it's a very current topic. Um, and so I don't want to certainly don't want to come across as encouraging anyone to kill themselves. But what I'm saying is, uh, I feel like there's a, I don't know. I, I, I guess I grew up with this very strong sense that, there if i'm sick if i'm really sick and there's no hope that i'm going to get better i hope and sort of anticipate that i'll go out on my own terms if i was to like having just listened to what you were saying like i had a reaction in myself when I mean, you're talking about your grandfather and like that self annihilation right and yeah. then it's like you know I've, i felt your emotional energy towards that being like fuck this guy like he fucked up my parents probably the, you know that like atmospherically that bled through your family right yeah. and uh, perhaps that's why you make the choices you do where it's like you're, you're going to be cruising in a van meeting like fucking wonderfully exciting interesting people like 
fucking maximizing your life because that's right. like the abject fucking opposite to your fucking grandfather right yeah and that you know and thank fucking god for that like i'm almost grateful to your grandfather because i wouldn't have fucking met you the other day and i wouldn't have listened to that fucking podcast five times in a row mm. that you did with joe rogan while i was painting my fucking show that you know affected like the sentient experience and my relationship to my fucking work and the way it did mm. and That's interesting so you know when you were like saying i just like fuck that guy get him out of the story you know what i mean like he should have well, you pretty much almost were like he should have blown his fucking brains out just so we could all fucking get on with our lives. Uh, my reaction to that was tough because it's like, okay, so then, Chris, because then you flip to like, well, you know, I don't advocate suicide. And, you know, the guy who got in touch yesterday, thank God, like, blah, you know, it's like, what is the social responsibility you have to that guy? Like, yeah. do you check in once a week with an email? Or do you feel grateful for the fact that that was a bit in a movement that his life could stratospherically change and, you know, he might land out running a phone line himself and saving a thousand people? You have no idea where that fucking delta is going. True. Yeah. But, but like... In terms of like, you know, the toes cut off, the calf, the knee, the fucking leg is like, of course you wished for him to die because it was like that fucking negative energy that spread across your family was fucked. And, you know, I, I totally get that. But it's like, do, do, you know, are those people in a way necessary in the experience of life? Because they trigger the positive, like the bounce back of that fucking negativity is the positivity. And would that have existed without that fucking negativity? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the most profound questions there is, right? Yeah. And, and it's unanswerable, like all the good questions. I yeah. Think. Because, you know, there's this whole thing where people are like, well, you know, I don't regret anything that's ever happened because then I wouldn't be me. Yeah. But the premise of that is that you in this current incarnation are the best possible incarnation of you, which is suspect. You know, I'm not the best possible version of me. So. But I, you might be, right? <laughs> like, you, well, if they're infinite versions, how could this possibly be the best one? No, but I mean, like, at this point in time, right? Yeah. I listen to your fucking podcast. I'm like, this guy's fucking rad. Like, wow, boom. Some freak of nature meant we met the other day. And a further freak of nature is like, you're like, yeah, fuck yeah, come in. Let's have a chat on the mics. Like, it's like almost like a, an ambition I never knew I had. That was possible. Mm. And here I am sat opposite you. But maybe like you and I right now are the best versions of ourselves. Like after this podcast, maybe a bunch of people find my voice so fucking interesting that I'm then become a celebrity and deluged with the most fucking amazing <laughs> pussy on the planet. And I become like the worst version of a fucking human. <laughs> Is that what it would take? Well, no, but uh, do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, I, yeah. I'm not sure what so is. So it's all downhill from here. Fuck, it's, it could be, this right? Is a, this is our peak moment. Y yeah. Thank God we're recording it. Right, exactly. <laughs> but there's like a self-correction. Like I was yeah. speaking to someone who landed out being, um, he landed out um, doing feng shui for famous people in Hollywood. Yeah. Like, well, this is where you move your shit and you're going to pay me loads of money, but we're going to not really pretend I'm getting paid because right. this is like a spiritual fucking experience. <laughs> <laughs> 
and uh, yeah. you know he, he he said his ego exponentially grew to such an extreme that what got him to the point where he became this guy that people found like could be their feng shui guy for the fucking celebrities of hollywood <laughs> then propelled him into being the fucking ugly beast he became yeah yeah of course you know well that's something i deal with i i just yesterday uh, so i do these i sometimes i do a podcast where there's no guest it's just me talking about whatever oh, cool. you know and i call that aroma which is ra- ranting out my ass right nice and uh so i did one yesterday and that was one of the things i talked about um how you know and joe rogan deals with this exponentially more than i do uh-huh. where i think there's a dearth of older men in our society to help guide younger men either because the father's absent or the father just generationally the father's not cool you know whatever yeah and so a lot of i get a, i'd say about 80 percent of the people who listen to this are probably young men right so i get a lot of emails from young men you know asking for advice on relationship stuff or this or that or whatever and you know, I don't have kids, so this is as close as I get to a paternal kind of energy with mm-hmm. anyone, you know, and and it's it's enigmatic because I think the thing that allows them to give a shit about my opinion is that I don't feel qualified to give advice. If that makes sense. Yeah, totally. So when you start taking, like other people can take you seriously as an artist, let's say. People are telling you you're a genius. But the minute you start thinking, yeah, you know what, I am kind of a genius, you're no longer an interesting artist. You're just a douchebag. Yeah, totally. So, So you want to be creating art that people think is the product of genius, but you always want to feel that they're wrong. Because if they're right, then you're a douchebag. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's yeah. I mean, I that's it's like a complicated question. It's like a, a rhetorical yeah. question or not or direct. Yeah. I, I, I've kind of got lost in it because it's so deep. What I, I mean, it's it, it relates to what we were saying earlier about whether we're the best version of ourselves, and you know, if you regret anything, I I kind of feel like you want to like. Is it like Jennifer Lopez? You're Jenny from the block, yeah. and then you're fucking not. Right. You're not from the block anymore. No. You're minted with big fucking uh, golf ball-sized fucking diamonds. Yeah. and But you're branding yourself as Jenny from the block, because you know that works. Or do you have to transition out of that to being jennifer lopez not jenny from the block so is it about adapting to the circumstance of change it i think it's about saying things that are true and maybe even saying things that are wise occasionally without thinking of yourself as a wise man yeah because then you can transmit like there's this line i i always think of um Honor those who seek the truth, flee from those who claim to have found it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, totally. So it's like you're creating art. You always see yourself as a conduit, never as the source. 
Because if you're the source, then you're taking yourself too seriously and then you're full of shit by definition. Yeah, I've definitely noticed that in the most exceptional people that I respect. Right. They don't see themselves as the artist. That's it. Yeah, That's they're a it. channeler of fucking That's energy. That's a channel. And that, then you still have the humility and the mm. gratitude that keeps you real. Yeah. That then actually good shit does flow through you. Yeah. But the minute you start saying, yeah, I'm pretty fucking cool, you're restricting the flow of that wisdom or, or beauty or whatever it is that you're, you're channeling. Mm. Yeah. It's, I, I don't know. I'm talking in circles. No, but. no, I like it. I mean, it's, it's stuff that, I mean, being an overanalyzer is what I've been described as in the past. Right. Mm. I mean, to me, that's what I'm, you know, find interesting, like examining the whole thing. And it's like, so, but it's that line between what is self-sabotage in terms of analyzing. Okay, am I... So there was a moment. It was an amazing moment for me. In fact, it really freaked me out. There's been a couple of moments in terms of directly relating to my career. So I did a show called What's It All About like four and a half years ago now. And that kind of really elevated like my audience, I suppose you put it like, you know, the show went viral, the the conversation was essentially centered on like my addiction to food and my relationship to eating disorders, using junk food as sculptural material on people. And then the larger political context around that about consumption and even like the art world's relationship to what is art based on like the Tate in England was, is the money from that was Tate and Lyle. So, What's Tate and Lyle? Tate and Lyle refined sugar. Oh, really? So uh, I, I start... That's where the Tate Museum money yeah, came from. Yeah, dude. And it's like fucking Nobel Prize with dynamite. Right. Yeah. So I was like, in as I was really expanding the story of this show in my head, I was like, what we define as art is based on slavery money. Yeah. Right? Right. They're the They're the ones who define what's worth looking at right and yeah, i'm or, or in the nobel prize case what's worth admiring intellectually and i, I mentioned that yeah. to the sales team of this show and the and it, it didn't go down well I didn't like that. and a journalist yeah. uh, not journalist like an art writer who i really loved and respected he wanted to engage with me about that show and write about that show he was like if you mention the tate and slavery i ain't fucking writing about your work <laughs> Because that's going to kill it for all of us involved. Like, and then that's like, wow, is there freedom of speech in art? Yeah. In the context of the art world. Yeah. Which is what leads me back to like how we met through Bombay Beach Biennale. It's like, where, you know, where is freedom of speech in art? And ultimately in the history of art, I think that has related to patronage of arts, Mm. which is rich people giving money to broke asses to make art. And right. and then there's that counterplay between artist and rich person, which is like, if the Medici family are getting you to do a portrait of Mary yeah. and Jesus, and you think they're cunts, you're going to paint Mary's face as the prostitute you slept with last week right. for your own personal right. fucking joke. A little subversion. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't, uh, who did that? It wasn't, um, it was it Velasquez who did those court uh, portraits? Of uh, the the royal family of Spain and made them all really ugly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I mean, like, yeah. Sorry. That's <laughs> it, no, no, cool. I love that. It's like Samistad. It's like a Soviet literature where you slip it by the censors. Yeah. Yeah. 
and it and then it's like what is the reality of like whether as an artist you want to be in service to the rich right i mean everyone's That's fucking your audience in, everyone's in service to the rich yeah. to some capacity or yeah. another right? right and then it's like do you want to be in service to the rich what does that mean for you do you feel like you can change their thinking through your art because they're the fucking people who are making the choices, the decisions of humanity and mm. how we're imploding or not imploding. Right. Um, and that kind of game. So it's like, what I love being about an artist is like, essentially you're the court jester in like mm. the history of like, there's the king. You're the fucking guy with the bells on your hat dancing around for me in a pig suit. And it's like, what messaging are you trying to channel out and at what point you're going to have your fucking head cut off right. and no longer have a voice right. because you're questioning you know the upper echelons too yeah. much yeah. and if you look at Jimi Hendrix I'm not comparing myself to him at all he just randomly came into my head like I know people who were very much close to him back in the day and they're like he was waterboarded with red wine in a flat in Notting Hill he was murdered like really? the alcohol levels in his body did not correlate whatsoever to the fact that, uh, you know, he basically had lungs full of red wine and it was projectile vomited on the fucking walls of the apartment. Like, what? why was Jimi Hendrix murdered? Why was John Lennon murdered? Why, you know, well, it's pretty fucking obvious. Well, is it? I mean, was Jimi Hendrix a, a potent political figure at that point? I know he was fucking a lot and doing a lot of acid <laughs> and like doing shit with a guitar nobody had ever done but he wasn't calling for, he wasn't Malcolm X or anything no but I, I mean I don't listen I'm the wrong guy to be talking about this stuff and I like threw that down like a fact which probably someone's going to fact check and go dude cut that shit out of the fucking iPod I mean I whatever it's called no, no podcast stays in. he's like that guy's nuts but it, it's like in a weird way, the the people who get taken out first with big voices questioning the system would be African Americans way over white yeah. people. Well that's certainly true. Right? Yeah. And that is undeniable. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean I'm a big fan of Jimi Hendrix and I certainly see him as revolutionary, but musically, I wouldn't say politically. He, yeah, but going back to what we were saying about hallucinogens, right? I don't know whether fucking LA is the epicenter of the beginning of change. All these people talking about ayahuasca and, you know, like, look, microdosing has just been legalized as a way of uh, medically dealing with depression, right? right? That's just a recent thing. So that means the pharmaceuticals know they can make a shitload of dough out of that and it's all cool now and they own that shit. Like, they'll own the fucking weed as well. Yeah. Uh, so it's about pacification as well but what about free thinking like you know Jimi Hendrix was definitely advocating the use of acid and free love and flower power and all the shit which is Fly your freak flag high right which yeah. is essentially what I gather you propagate as a concept and relationship to life like yeah. reversing it all the way back to when you know hunter gathering and all that right we share we care we don't dominate and right. fuck everyone else other than the individual right yeah i don't know yeah yeah no it's true i mean i'm i'm definitely a hippie apologist there's no doubt about it yeah yeah i don't know it's uh 
I, I do think sometimes how subvert, like I think about it more in terms of Joe Rogan, really, because yeah. his audience is, you know, 10 times or 20 times the size of mine. And he needs, I think he needs to be careful because he's definitely advocates free speech. And, yeah. To a point where it could be problematic um, if his audience continues to grow or if he starts calling for any kind of action, you know, hey, why don't we boycott this company because they're fucking over, you know, whatever. If he, totally. If he started doing that, it would be interesting to see what kind of attention came down on him. Yeah. yeah, there's definitely. And you and I were talking earlier about um, institutions as organisms. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't even have to be any kind of explicit conspiracy. It's just there are sort of organic responses to things. When something becomes a threat, it becomes eliminated, you know, like that tends to happen. Well, yeah, I mean, you just said we were talking about organizations as being organisms. No, I was like listening in awe to you fucking saying that. Like, let's recorrect what you just said. I'm like, yeah, oh, fuck. Like, you know, you were discussing... Well, can you say it? Because it fucking... I, uh, uh, well, people, they've heard me talk about oh, it okay. before. Yeah. Well, it just blew my tits off because it's like, right, it made a lot of fucking sense. Like yeah. in a way I hadn't ever thought about. Yeah, emergent intelligence, emergent patterns. You know, like the way... There, I, my favorite example is there's um, there's a grasshopper that's native to North Africa. Yeah. And the grasshoppers are dispersed they they live you know they're pretty independent they're eating grass they're chill they're you know they don't bother each other and when the rains come uh there's lots more grass they propagate and the population goes up and then the rains stop and the grasslands start to shrink right yeah and as the grasslands shrink these grasshoppers come closer and closer together and there's a certain point where their population density, they're close enough to each other that some genes that are normally dormant are triggered. Mm-hmm. It's called epigenetic uh, effect. And as soon as those genes are triggered, their bodies change. This is not over generations. This is like an individual. Their front legs get shorter. Their back legs get longer. The shape of their head changes. Mm-hmm. Their coloring changes. And they become super aggressive and start biting each other. Wow. And essentially cannibalistic. Mm-hmm. And when they start biting each other, they go up in these massive swarms. Yeah. And they swarm across North Africa and eat fucking everything. Yeah. And this is the biblical plague of locusts. Right. This yeah. is the species that's yeah. in the Bible, right? And they fucking destroy everything until nothing's left. And then 95% of them die of starvation. And the ones that survive go back to being grasshoppers. I think essentially that's the story of civilization. Yeah. I think we're swarming right now. We're yeah. destroying everything. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. and some of us remember what it was like to be grasshoppers. Yeah. And we want to go back. Yeah. You know, and we're the ones who are suffering and and you know, nostalgic. Yeah. Like this is perfect for me. Right? I was in San Francisco. I was having breakfast with my friend and a bunch of other people. I always meet the most interesting people I've ever met through him as one of like, it's just like unquestionable. And I sat there and I was listening to this guy, really handsome guy and his beautiful wife. They were talking about their eco home. I was like, 
Uh, my girlfriend's dad at the time had built one himself, concrete walls, dug down, all the shit. Like, I didn't know anything about it, but I'd heard all this chat for a few years. And I was engaging with this guy, and he's like, oh, we're digging down, we're solaring, we're off-gridding, we're doing this, and the whole thing. I was like, really engaging in this conversation. I was going, this this is where it's at, like what you're saying. He's grasshoppering. Right. He's going off-grid. He's not, like, on the fucking electric and this and that I was like wow this guy this is like in my mind an ambition for myself had this great fucking San Fran breakfast I don't get why people queue in San Francisco for fucking breakfast but anyway (laughs) (laughs) it's like really is it that good it's fucking eggs and toast toast, exactly anyway we walk off down the street and I was like said to my friend Edward I was like that guy was really rad I loved like his thing I was like what's the story and he just went, yeah, he's the grandchild of the Walmarts. Uh, and I was like, fuck me. That, you didn't yeah. tell me that, did you? Because yeah. you knew I'd fucking tear his arms and legs off. Yeah. And he was like, and I tried to go back, but he'd gone. <laughs> I wanted to fucking go nuts. Yeah. Because yeah. It, like, the thing is, is like what I find really interesting right now is the richest, most privileged people that I know, who are often the people in that circumstance was like, oh, I just want to be like, dude, just get your fucking parents to pay people enough money that they don't have to be state-funded as well as having a fucking full-time job for you. Let's not talk about your eco-fucking wall tiles. But it was like the most richest privileged people I know, correct me if you think I'm totally nuts here, uh, are mirroring the poorest people. Hmm. Yeah. Right? Poorest in whatever the fuck poor means. But it's like... We want to go and get an Ikea home. We want to grow our own food. We want right. to, you know, we want to be around animals more space. Right. And by poorest, like, I mean, like, fucking whatever tribal people we've allowed left to exist. The yeah. Azmats or whatever yeah. the fuck is going on. Yeah. But it's like, you you are, the ch- you know, the child of the Walmart family. Uh, he was, t- was it him telling me a story? That was it. About how he went on a date. I know this girl who dated him. I then was like talking about him to this girl I know. I was like, fucking what eco home, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, oh, he's so nice. You know what? He, he took me out in his helicopter. He buzzed me through a poppy field and all these petals flew up over the helicopter. And she was looking at me like this was the most momentous experience she'd had in her life. Yeah. And I looked at her and I said, do you fucking think you're the only chick he's ever done that to? <laughs> like, you nuts? Yeah. It's bullshit. And also, like, how much fuel does a helicopter use? You know? Like, you're Mr. Echo guy, and you're taking chicks out on helicopter dates? Buzzing poppy <laughs> fucking petals over the <laughs> shit. Destroying the field of poppies. <laughs> <laughs> like yeah, yeah, you know I mean yeah. uh, like my equivalent of that uh, going back to what we said earlier is the $12 matcha latte right. and fucking Larchmont <laughs> so, so, someone else would consider that as equally insane yeah yeah well, it's all scale right tell me about the you said you were dosed by with acid when you were 14 what, yeah what the fuck was that how did that happen well yeah it was my sister actually like I voluntarily took it but you know um, uh, this private school I mentioned with the headmaster, the pedophile, like I was a rugby star. I was like, def- I was put on a sort of weird mantle of worship, mm. like literally worship by this guy. Was this Eton? You must have been in. Same sort of vibe, but the prep school version. Right, so right. it leads you into oh, fucking okay. Eton, right. which is where the other guy I mentioned went to school. Oh, oh. So yeah, this is like high level fucking educational shit. Right. 
but the point is about boarding schools the reason that they they detach you so far from your emotional landscape that's what gears you into becoming a sociopathic ceo that doesn't give a fuck about the planet because you are ripped from your parents at seven and fucking beaten or molested by a fucking pedophile it's i mean i know you're overstating it for effect but you're not really overstating it no i I think the educational system as it exists certainly in in the uk i mean if you're rich and you get into that whole public school track it is emotionally abusive like terribly abusive i've i met a guy in thailand a couple weeks ago south african dude who has been living in japan for years and teaching there and he he said to me, man, it's the most heartbreaking thing in the world. They take those kids and they destroy them. Yeah. That's what they do. That's what education is in Japan. Destroy them. Yeah. It's incredible. I mean, and that's it. We live in a sick society. So in order to perpetuate itself, Mm. it needs to destroy us. My ex's father, the fucking brilliant family, like, Jesus, I always cry when I just even mention them. Um, he's like, Harvard should be blown up. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Did he go to Harvard? No, but he's... He, him he and went his, to Yale. He, him and, no, no, no. Quite the opposite. Him and his wife started the body shop. Oh, right, right. So, like, they, you know, they invented the concept of fair trade. I mean, all this fucking... Amazing, you know, it's like... Yeah. if You know, he's an opinion, and I sadly never met Anita, Sam's mum, but, yeah, the, those are people you, you want to... be listening to or re-looking at. I mean, that's right. the thing is, is so often... People think they're inventing a new construct of thinking, like you're a fucking genius. But it's like, you know, I was sat around a table of like tech people in in uh, San Francisco. It's like, in fact, we discussed this the other day, didn't we? About there's 20 people, they all live together. They're all six, seven figure salary people. They work for NASA, Facebook, all this fucking shit. And they'd set the intent of the conversation of that night. And it was about... Uh, Trump, the election, Facebook, and their mate Zucks. You know, these guys are like, they're friends. It was like, oh, he didn't really think about that this was the route it was going to go down. Yeah. And I'm in my head, I'm going, the fuck? But actually, when you hang out with these people in a very loose fashion, you realize that, yeah, it's a bunch of white male autistic geeks who don't really have any fucking social skills. Yeah. And they're fucking deciding what the fuck's going on. Well, see, that's the thing. Now, if you get into this way of thinking that I was outlining before with the emergent intelligence of organizations and all that, Mm. the way I've come to look at these things is that these guys aren't deciding what's going on. They're useful to the enacting of what's being decided, and I'm using air quotes with decided, by these entities. So just like the example I gave you of the, the Exxon CEO who has an experience with ayahuasca and comes in and says, we can't do this. We need to change. Yeah. He's eliminated because Exxon's going to do what Exxon's going to do. Yeah. Exxon is going to increase profits. They're going yeah. to, you know, if they can spill their oil for free, they'll spill their fucking oil. It yeah. doesn't matter, right? And if, it, if they're going to be fine, then they're going to 
the organization will turn toward the source of the problem and eliminate the senator who voted for it or eliminate the department or corrupt the department by getting one of their ex, you know, board members is appointed to the administration. That's just the way the organizations interact. So these autistic white or Asian geeks who are working for these companies, I don't think they're making the decisions. I think they are plugged into decisions that are already made. You know what I mean? I don't know. I can't agree. I just, I can't allow myself to agree with you. Like, mate, it's because I, you know, it's like, I haven't read your book well, yet. That, but when I do, <laughs> it's like. Can't blame you. So that would be fair enough. Yeah, yeah. But but it's more, you know, because actually that's like delegating the responsibility of choice away from humanity. Well, that's it. Who decided to, to have World War One? Who decided? Nobody decided. It I, just I, fucking happened. I, I don't know. I think profit decides a lot. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying profit guides, if profit is the point of the organization, in the case of corporations, it is. Mm -hmm. Profit, they flow the same way, they flow toward profit the same way water flows down a hillside. For sure. But profit is determined as a value by humans. Is it? When did we decide that? When we uh, decided to, I mean, fuck, decide money had a value. Yeah, but D did we decide that? Some at some point, gold had a value. Yeah, it is like when we say humans, if it's if it's all humans together, then it's really no humans, right? If like if all if a if salmon come together and become a school yeah and just start moving together as this entity mm -hmm. no salmon decided all right let's all get over here and all move together like no one decides there's no leader you mean the river was flowing and they followed the river they follow some instinctive uh programming yeah but uh, yeah so in all of the ways I was looking at this shit, rewind, rewind, rewind. I did an effigy of Donald Trump three years ago, right? It was the first piece to go viral about him as like a sort of visual attack on him. It had a pig snout and meat or an oil pouring out of a blue suit, right? And his red tie. And I was in Hong Kong, had a, had a, had a show there where I re released that image, right? The next day after the show opened, I was stood in front of like four news cameras, literally whilst holding my iPhone on FaceTime on live on a news network in Uzbekistan, which I still don't even really know where that country is, if I'm being honest. <laughs> but and, you're famous there. Right. For like three <laughs> seconds on a news segment. And I was like, had the Trump piece behind me on the wall, right? Yeah. And... I was like, you know, what what has manifested now in this latest show, like talking about love and what are your foundational love ingredients? I was talking about it then, talking about Trump. Like, it's only really in the last year or so I've started, journalists have run out of what to say about Trump other than just be in reaction to him. So finally now it's like, just like the beginnings of why is Trump Trump? Why is Why does he behave the way he does? Like, mm. and that, you know, I read an interesting article in the New York Times. I was like, yeah, that's great. I probably should have done that fucking Huffington Post article I couldn't be bothered to write three years ago. It, you know, but it doesn't matter because the thinking is there. But I was stood in front of the fucking piece 
in front of the news cameras describing him and his need for attention and this and breaking it all down why why does he need the attention oh yeah he felt an inferiority complex to his father who made all that money from whorehouses and turned it into an authenticated version of fucking being rich quickly and fast that's what rich people do that's what the kennedys did yeah it's like turn it into art turn it into things that like make it respectable yeah Yeah. doesn't look like warmongering in africa or whatever the fuck and and um i was talking about him in this way i was like fuck me why why am i the person who has such a need for attention that i'm stood in front of these fucking cameras myself right and i started to see all the similarities between me and donald trump (laughs) right i was like fucking hell for me to be a successful artist standing in front of news cameras i must be a fucking self-involved narcissist Like, yeah, it's it's like looking at that journey of healing through my art. Like three years ago, I was like, for me to truly heal from my art and the way in which I relate to producing art, which was within the context of the art world, I need to give up fucking art Mm. because I under earn. I need a shitload of fucking attention to even believe it's going to work. And it's all fucking about me. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. There's an interesting... Uh, sort of convergence of egotistical, narcissistic energy and prominence. Yeah. And I, you know, I look at that systemically and it's like, oh, most of the people that we emulate are monsters. Mm -hmm. Because if you're not a monster, you don't rise to that position of prominence. Fuck yeah. You know, in the art world, I think it's, a little different because there are people who are just so fucking talented that they can achieve that prominence without being that narcissistic. Like I'm thinking of musicians, for example. I mean, Mozart was Mozart was damaged, uh, certainly. But you think about people who are just like, you know, I don't know, Michelangelo, you know, like that guy was a genius. And I don't, Think, I don't know a lot about him, but I don't think he was seeking attention. I think he was sitting alone in a room and just doing this crazy, amazing shit that he did. I just think that's rebranding. I mean, how the fuck do you convince someone to like help you turn fucking several tons of marble into uh, fucking uh, a big version of fucking David yeah. unless you can convince them to do so? Yeah. Which means you must be so into what you're doing that you ain't just in your fucking bedroom. Yeah. You, you know, you're pushing yourself out there. Because how else the fuck would so? they... F- was he marketing himself or was he just doing stuff that people would see and go, holy shit, this guy's a genius. But how do you see it? I mean, like some of yeah, the most well, talented artists in the world are doing watercolors in their bedroom and just keep them in their diary and no one's ever seen them. Yeah, like Emily Dickinson. You know, nobody... You know her, the poet? Nobody mm-hmm. knew her when she died. She just wrote stuff and kept it in a in a drawer yeah and then she died and they found it like holy shit look at this this is amazing yeah yeah i mean it's 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 strange so many especially in politics you know or you read like uh, biographies of musicians Mm -hmm. you know i I recently uh i actually listened to the uh, autobiography of keith richards oh yeah i've heard it's great yeah it's really interesting johnny depp reads a lot of it and uh, Keith does a little bit. And then the rest is an actor who has the same accent, the same sort of regional, you know. 
And, um, you know, like so many of these famous musicians, he basically got into the guitar as a way to impress girls. Right, exactly. So if he'd been getting laid anyway, he probably wouldn't have bothered. Well, that goes back to your sort of bonobo nut scale, doesn't it? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, are my sperm more voluminous than fucking his bonobo nuts? Well, yeah, because I'm on a stage with a fucking guitar with Mick Jagger. Yeah, yeah. You know? I get to... Yeah. So you never told me why your shoes are pink, though. Oh, my God. I thought I managed to get away with that. I was like, fuck, why? No, no, dude. This is how we're going to bring it all together. Happy ending. Well, it fucking was that. That, Yeah. So I'm not a kiss and tell kind of person, but this scenario was relayed as a story by the person I was with to a group of people. So it's public knowledge. So it's public knowledge as far as I'm concerned. And it ties in really nicely to Bombay Beach Biennale. Here we go. Um, And so I'm at the bar, the ski inn. In, uh, it's the only alcohol license in Bombay Beach. There's like dollar bills, staple candle all over the place, whatever, blah, blah. There's a very, very beautiful, sexy woman sitting at the bar. And I happen to be trying to order a drink next to her. And um, I'm stood next to a friend of mine. Anyway, we'll end up getting chatting briefly. It just was a f- strong energy my bonobo nut scale was appropriate for this person i could tell even though they weren't hanging out <laughs> did you mention that too uh, and i was like okay whatever so we chatted very very briefly and uh, that was the end of that i was like i was like she was like that girl you're with you really like her don't you i was like no that's my friend's girlfriend and she was like oh you're just trying to hide you're in love with your friend's girlfriend it was like pathetic in a way the conversation but then it you know uh finished with like i was like we should you know we're both here for a few weeks it'd be great to see you again Mm. that was the end of that never saw her again until i was like walking around uh tal's institute you know uh our mutual friend the institute of particle physics and world peace right and uh i was looking at these amazing artworks with like long hair dressage on them and uh landed out speaking to the artist who was uh, the aforementioned girl at the bar i feel kind of embarrassed telling this story it's like some schoolboy bragging <laughs> like do i have to do this you don't have to well it's you kind of to. all right well you can like cut it out or whatever no, but, no. like i haven't told you the story and just like now i consider you a friend uh-huh. i'd want to tell you the story anyway because right. i'm fucking happy for myself right and her yeah so um, we're chatting and she's like, I saw your video. You know, I was really liking it. She's like, I saw your video and I'm thinking one of them's me stitching in a dead pig, masturbating, stuffing my head full of pizza. The other one's me wearing a fucking suit made out of mine and my sister's childhood toys, like a suit of armor. And I leap off a plinth and hang myself. So I was like, which one is she thinking about? And the, there's no chance with me and her. She's like, yeah, the one of you in the stuffed teddy suit. And I, was, I just didn't respond. And she said, I really liked it. I was like, which bit? She was like, the suit. I was like, 
I was like, oh, yeah, that's made out of my childhood toys. Like, you know, I'm really into the ac academic of my thinking when I talk about my work. She's like, yeah, I really love furry stuff. I'm like, <laughs> I was like, what do you mean? She's like, I'm a furry. Oh, yeah. I was like, <laughs> this is like going back to what we were saying about becoming the worst version of yourself when yeah. you're just starting to think you're becoming the best version <laughs> of yourself. I like meet a fucking furry. And I was like, yeah. so I was like, for some reason, it just get, I was just like, it was this energy. So I was like, well, like, what's your fantasy? You know, it was like, yeah. it was just a base curiosity. It wasn't because I felt like we were going to share a fantasy together or something. Mm. She was like, I've always wanted to be fucked by a big pink unicorn. Mm. And I was like, <laughs> like referring to back to what you were saying, like, I, just not my cup of tea. Like I just, I don't, I don't, if someone says I'm having a fancy dress party, I'm thinking, oh fuck. Yeah. I'm not thinking, oh wicked. I'm going to choose for my 10 different outfits out of the fucking yeah. box I have under my bed. <laughs> I was like, oh shit. <laughs> so I was like, right. All right. I was uh, I thought I can uh, so I said this can be arranged yeah you know because she was like no one's ever responded to my wishes hmm. I was like would you like me to and she was like yeah I would alright so I was like okay when we get back to LA I'm gonna arrange this for you I wasn't even thinking that I was like I had no idea around how this was gonna be contextualized okay yeah. And that was that. And I phoned up Stefan, who owns the hotel, the Petit Hermitage. He's the guy to call. He's the guy you to call. You need a pink unicorn outfit. If, if you have a mad fucking creative idea, yeah. speak to him. He'll enhance it. He'll fucking... <laughs> I was like, I'm no, I'm no longer allowed to stay in his hotel. Oh, you're not? Even though we're such great friends and we love working together, my food bill was $18,000 the last time I stayed there because uh, I'm an overeater who loses the fucking plot. So I'm much more regulated, yeah. which is good for me, good for him, good for the business in general, right. the hotel. So I was like, Steph, I need a room next week and I'm going to need it for two nights. And he's like, why? I was like, I need it for two nights because I'm going to fill it with hay. <laughs> <laughs> do unicorns eat hay? In my head, they do. Wow. And All so right. I was like, okay. He's like, yeah. And he said, it's very busy at the moment. There's Coachella on, the hotel's full, but I'm going to organize this for you. So I was like, he said, I said, look, I don't want any of your staff cleaning up after me. That's why I need it for two days. I'm going right. to hoover the hay and shit. You won't, they'll be the same as I found it. He's like, dude, you have this beautiful opera house that you've done all this fucking work in. And there's hay bales all around Bombay Beach. Good point. He's like, I was like, I didn't even notice them because I've been working so hard at the opera, putting on, helping manage the shows. And like, there's a whole team of people. It's not like my fucking opera house. It's yeah. our fucking opera house. Yeah. It's Bombay Beach's opera house, right? But essentially my work's inside it. I have a set of keys. So I was like, okay, well, I just got straight on it. I was like, my friend Greg, who I mentioned earlier, his assistant, Emily, who's brilliant. She does signs for the, and she's an amazing creative. 
I was like, guys, can we go to the beach and throw four hay bales on the roof of your car? She's like, sure. I was like, I can't explain it, but get those. <laughs> Just trust me. They're in the back of the opera house now. Yeah. There's a room full of squiggles, my sculptures, finding me through you. The extension yeah. of the show I started in Germany. In like hundreds of sandal flip-flops from Nigeria? Yeah. Is that you, that you brought, you shipped back from a beach in Nigeria? Yeah. Okay. That's like a whole other That's story. a whole other thing, right? That's like about commodity the white male, me going from a left-leaning egalitarian artist within 24 hours becoming like the CEO of a multinational that was just like ethical standards had lost the plot. I mean, there's a like there's a podcast in that. Yeah, one. we'll do another but one. My unicorn sex, I guess I've given away the punchline. Well, we knew where it was going. <laughs> I was guess, it doesn't need to even be this long. Probably not. Uh, it's all in the details. And That's, dude, you're yeah. the one who provides extra strength coffee. So if you don't want your guests <laughs> to talk like this much, then just don't do that. That was a little bitches brew there that got you going. Hashtag bitches brew. <laughs> and so I have like this mattress, like beautiful cotton sheets, like uh, pillows. I've got LaCroix sparkling water. Oh. That's not an easy resource to get in Bombay. Yeah. Bottle of red wine. I don't drink, whatever. My fucking unicorn up my shoes are pink like that's the point they're sprayed pink i sprayed my timberlands pink i got my leggings on that i borrowed off emily she's got all this pink stuff she's like the dolly part of bombay beach mm. she has all this pink stuff kitted up uh, but one of my artworks has got 14 inch bronze dicks on it and like horns horns yeah like devil horns ah. i hadn't had a chance to glue them on yet because it was so busy getting everything ready, like mm. four weeks to pull out all of this work. And, um, you know, the, the, the dicks is like some cultures, a big dick is like what you have around your door frame. Mm. It's a sign of fertility and all that shit. Other cultures is like porn rape yeah. nightmare. So it's like, that's why I have that shit in my work. Right. So anyway, I'm like, I'm going to, that's my fucking unicorn. And I had like, a child's bicycle helmet with like a troll hair, pink hair on it because I bought that to use as a foundation of the sculpture of one of my pieces and I didn't use it in the end. So it's like big 14 inch bronze dick through child's bicycle helmet. That's the start of the outfit. I'm beginning to wish I wasn't telling this story. (laughs) (laughs) So so you got a strap on 14 inch dick on your head. Right. Right. And are you wearing like a horse outfit? Well, you know, like I had two hours preparation and I'm in a, in a desert town. Yeah. There's not, not, not a lot you know, of horse My face was so. painted as a horse by this point oh. and I had like pink furred coat on. I mean, uh-huh. I did the best I could. And you paint, and did you fuck her with your shoes on? Um, well, Seeing as you asked, when you've got a 14-inch bronze penis on your head, one of the biggest concerns is knocking someone's teeth out with yeah, That it. would be a Because it's a heavy pit of kit. Yeah. So things started up against the wall with me with a very straight back, uh, hoping the dick wasn't going to smash her head in. Good. Because that would be a That's difficult one to explain. You want to be a gentleman unicorn. You don't want to be swinging. <laughs> And, and, and you know, uh, I said I, I said to her earlier. I woke up with her this morning. I said, "It's unbelievable circumstance. I get to meet one of my heroes. I'm going to go and talk to him." I was like, "I'm so excited about how we first had sex. Like, there's yeah. a feasible possibility this story might come up, right? How do you feel about me telling it?" She's like, "Well, I was happy to tell." 
everyone in Bombay, just don't mention my fucking name. Yeah, fair well, enough. So that's that. Fair enough. Well, I mean, if you show up wearing pink shoes, somebody's going to ask about the pink shoes. Yeah, probably. You know, it's... it's <laughs> I, I would feel negligent not to. Well, especially if there is in in contrast to the rest of my outfit, yeah, which is like yeah. black tracksuit. Yeah. So and and it sounds like uh, it was the beginning of something that's uh, that's continuing. It's a very romantic way to begin a relationship. Yeah, I mean, at this point, I suppose you just decide whether to tell that story uh, to your wedding guest. Exactly. With how you met? So how did you meet? Yeah. yeah or- how did you two meet? Well. <laughs> Can I tell him, honey? Yeah. Listen yeah. to Chris's podcast. <laughs> hey, mom and dad, how did you meet? Uh, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. in the end, I guess it's like, it's that freedom of that I'm experienced right now where I'm just open to change. Like, yeah. And that's what's beautiful. And that's, you know, I wouldn't have met you guys today. Yeah. If you didn't flow. Well, is it the salmon flowing down the river or is it the fucking river taking you? Who the fuck knows? Who knows? Who knows, man? I'll tell you what—we've been talking for two hours. Are you kidding? This is this is the this is the sign of a good podcast. Oh, when it goes by really fast, and you're—I've got a list of things in my head that I still want to talk to you about. I feel the same way, man. Yeah, good. Well, let's wrap it up here mm-hmm. with the pink shoe story. It seems like <laughs> happy ending. There's a nice arc, a nice narrative arc there. <laughs> And uh, we'll do this again next time we're in the same part of the world. What do you say? Yeah, that'd be great, man. I'd love that. Great. Thank you. Do you have a website or something where people can go and see your stuff? Yeah, sure. It's www.jamesostra.com, spelt O-S-T-R-E-R. Perfect. That's easy to remember. James Ostra, thank you. Thanks, man. It's a privilege. All right. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with James Ostra. And uh, check out his work. His website's um, a gas. I also, uh, I looked up the the video of his dad that he talked about for his dad's birthday. And that was really cool. That's on YouTube as well. You'll find that. Uh, I think it's Paul Ostra. Um, <clears throat> it's a re- really well done uh, video and uh, interview. He's super into motorcycles. Anyway, uh, thanks for listening. And don't forget to order up some mud water if you're into it. M-U-D-W-T-R dot com. Shane and his partner very um, graciously sponsored the podcast. They're my first sponsor. And, um, you know, it's like your first baby. It'll never be the same. Really appreciate the support. And uh, that's it. I'm going to just say hi to mom. And uh, then Carsey Blanton is going to play you out with her beautiful smoke alarm tune that she performed just for us in her garden in New Orleans. She's on tour, by the way, right now. So um, maybe check her out, carcyblanton.com. See if she's playing near you anywhere. If she is, man, go see her. She's really great in concert. She's, it's an intimate, powerful, beautiful thing to see her play live. I really, I really enjoy her. All right. That's enough for me. Here's to you. Justin and Bennett and all the rest of us who are going to die one day. Okay, Mom, uh, tell people what they can order from the garage. Okay, in our cottage garage, we have lots and lots of T-shirts. Sex at Dawn, Civilized to Death, Vanthropology, Tangentially Speaking, Paleo Modern, and Talking Out of My Ass. (laughs) 
<laughs> she didn't like saying that last one. Then we now have some new things added. We've got beer cozies or koozies or whatever they're called. Oh, civilized to death design. They're all civilized That's right. to death. We have stickers and car decals, right? Yes. Okay. There you have it. That's Julie, my mom. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're going to say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone. I don't want to give the end away, but we're going to die one day. Your body is an animal, doesn't ask for much. A little music and a soft touch. Why don't you let it out to play? Your heart is in a birdcage, singing in your chest. You want to shut it up, but give it a rest. You're going to die one day. Why do we waste our time thinking about a reputation? Running from a confrontation, wondering what we ought to say. When everyone we've ever known is headed for a headstone, I don't want to give the end away, but we're going to die one day. We're going to die one day. We're going to die one day. So baby, what's a big deal? If you want to be free, say what you want to feel, spend the night with me. I'm gonna take you up in my arms, and if we must go down, we'll go singing to the smoke alarms, we'll dance into the ground. 